Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. So the reading for today is Philippians chapter 2 from verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in every nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but, also, but how much more in my absence, continue to work on your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is the word of God. Thank you, Martha. <clears throat> Thank you, Johnny. I will have it now that you brought it. Um, Shall we pray? Loving God, who's very essence is to give yourself away for the sake of others. I pray that you would speak this morning. I pray that you would speak to my heart. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And I pray that you would say something about your love to us, how we need to hear that. I pray that that would, I pray that that would be what, people, what we encounter this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We are, we're at a turning point in the life of Trinity Church Nottingham from pivoting from the Jesus revolution into the joy of Christmas. It's all about Jesus, don't worry. Um, But this is the final week of our series on the Jesus revolution, and it's also the first Sunday of Advent. Happy Advent to you. Um, and also with me, thank you. Um, I want, it made me wonder as I was on my way here how you celebrate Advent. Um, I wonder how many people have had chocolate for breakfast by way of a show of hands. There's no shame in this. I'm, my hand is up. Come on, people. Admit it. <laughs> does, anyone, does, anyone get, does anyone have an Advent candle that you light every day and burn for a very short and specific length of time? No? That, oh, Martha, we have an Advent candle that has not been lit yet this year. Candles that we don't like, that, that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> anyone got a more interesting Advent candle than a chocolate one? Now, this, this really will be interesting. Oh, oh we've, got some, we've got some. I've got I was in Germany recently, and I was shocked... I was shocked and stunned and amazed by the range of advent calendars that were available in German shops. There were bath bomb advent calendars. 
like this one, the magical unicorn bath bomb advent calendar. Some of you are feeling right now like you've missed out. There was a Nutella advent calendar that looked like this. I've not seen this in England. If you've seen this in England, you know, let me know. Um, There was a Mercedes advent calendar. In 24 days, you can build a Mercedes. It's only a model, but it comes with real sound. This is quite expensive. I was in the actual Mercedes Museum when I saw these. There are multiple versions of this. Who is buying those? You don't have to admit it. You don't have to put your hand up. But you should feel a little judged. Um, this is a Fortnum and Mason advent calendar. This, the, they are getting increasingly expensive. That's not Fortnum and Mason. That is Tiffany's. That was my final one. This is Fortnum and Mason. This, is, this retails for about £150. So if you're looking for something exciting to have every morning, there you go. But if you really probably have more money than sense in terms of celebrating Advent, you could get a Tiffany Advent calendar, which is full of diamonds and will cost you more than (laughs) £100,000. Has anyone got one of those? (laughs) No. This is, um, for, for the avoidance of doubt, I don't know these because I bought them. This is what our Advent calendar setup looks like this year. Thank you. These are hand-painted by my wife, the trains and the tree. She's not in here, but Ellie is very grateful for that. Um, Ellie painted the trains and the tree, and the children are into Pokemon at the moment. So as you can see, there's a three-way shared little advent calendar, which has small plastic Pokemon figures in it, and has a label on each numbered door to reduce the amount of fighting. Everyone knows which is their day. Now, um, you'll see from this that there are only only three, well, four advent calendars. There are only advent calendars for children in this picture. And that is partly because I didn't get around to organizing it. But it's also partly because I'm slightly conflicted about advent calendars. I have a friend um, who marks advent with a 40-day fast. He starts early enough to be done by Christmas, don't You don't have to do the maths on this. But somehow, that seems more in keeping with the fact that Advent lives in the same category as Lent does in the church year. It's the same kind of period of preparation for a feast. And I tell you that because I think it raises the question of the meaning of Advent. What's it all about? Why do we mark time as a community before Christmas in this way? And I want to suggest to you this morning, that the meaning of Advent is that it gives you and I an opportunity to reflect on the generous way that Jesus comes to us. And more than that, even, the way that he came, the way that he comes, and the way that he will come again. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. But somewhat frustratingly, I want to do it in a slightly different order with the future first. So he will come again, He came and he comes. Why? Why do that? Why start with the future? Why start there? Because I think one of the unique elements of Advent is that it is the season of our church life when the coming of Jesus is still in the future. For a few days each December, Jesus hasn't arrived yet. We're still waiting for him to come to us. 
And that matters because if you're anything like me, most of your life is actually spent in that unfulfilled waiting kind of a place. Merry Christmas. But this isn't a Scrooge-like, bar humbug reminder of suffering and incompleteness of the world when you came to church to feel better for five minutes. You battled through the snow to feel better for five minutes this morning. In fact, I think that I'm trying to undo one of the fatal flaws in the message about success that you and I are continually bombarded with in the contemporary West. Let me try to explain this. This week, I came across a story on the BBC BBC Sport website about a man called Anthony Mullally. This is Anthony Mullally. He is an ex-rugby league professional, and he now runs retreats in Cornwall, which include breathwork and cold water therapy and jiu-jitsu, and inviting men to re-examine ideas of masculinity. And what grabbed me was not the idea of going on one of these retreats. What grabbed me was his account of the journey that led him to search for meaning in freezing cold Cornish seas. Let me read you a paragraph from the article. Mullally's journey towards this new outlook began just after the high point of his playing career. In 2017, he experienced a decline in motivation despite realizing a childhood dream and winning the Super League Grand Final in front of 74,000 people at Old Trafford. It's kind of a big deal. The external achievement and status wasn't making me happy, and it left a big void feeling within me, he said. Let me paraphrase this and see if you recognize it. I worked extremely hard. I got what I was trying for. And then I realized it wasn't enough. What happened to Anthony Mullally? He had pursued the climax of a particular story only to find out that it wasn't enough to make his life meaningful. And before you start to stick up for him, I'm not trying to make an example of poor Anthony. I'm well acquainted with this pattern, and potentially you are as well. See, when I started to study for my PhD, I thought that when I'd written it, I would have changed the world. Have you not noticed that it's been published? No? And even if I could change the world only a little bit, I'd definitely have achieved some form of personal greatness that I could carry with me in the form of a title in front of my name that would open doors and gain respect. The problem for me was I didn't realize that I'd thought this until I woke up the morning after I'd passed and realized that I was still the same person. I didn't know any more or any less. I only had the incomplete skills that I'd built in the process. And I certainly didn't feel any more special. I had mistaken the climax of this little story for the climax of the whole human story. I'd expected more of it than it could possibly deliver. See, there's this fatal flaw in the way that you and me are trained to live in the Western world. The world around you actually wants you to trade the story of glory that God is calling you into for the partial fulfillment of a successful contract negotiation, or a project delivered within time and under budget, or a perfectly pristine home, which all have to be replaced immediately by a bigger one, and a bigger one, and a better one, as soon as you realize that the climax 
of the story hasn't delivered the fulfillment that you needed it to. Anthony Mullally is not even alone among sporting success stories. He's found that winning simply didn't deliver what they expected. Think of Victoria Pendleton or Ronnie O'Sullivan. And beyond sport, think of the unbelievable wealth of John D. Rockefeller and his answer to the question of how much money you need. Just a little bit more. Just another dollar. Why is this? Well, I think Donald Miller puts it really beautifully in a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, which I'm going to kind of quote backwards and forwards with throughout the rest of our time together. Listen to this. I'm convinced that the most fantastical moment in the story, the point where all the tension is finally relieved, doesn't happen in real life. I simply don't believe that utopia is going to happen. I don't believe we are going to be rescued. I don't believe an act of man will make things perfect. And I don't believe God will intervene before I die, or for that matter, before you die. You don't have to agree with him. I believe instead we will go on longing for a resolution that will not come, not within life as we know it anyway. I think Advent helps us to recognize some of the truth in this, that we are heading for the glory of God and that that is simply not something that belongs within this category of life as we know it, that it's more and it's greater and it's bigger and it's worth living a longing life in light of that. That you and I are called to await the coming of Jesus in his glory, the kingdom in its fulfillment. And that between here and that ultimate Advent, that ultimate Christmas, we should expect to long for it. Because you were made for more than this. That intuition is true. You were made for more than doing well at work and getting a better job with higher pay so you can spend it on nicer Christmas presents or an Advent calendar from Tiffany's. And this is good news. Don Miller again, it's written in the fabric of our DNA that life used to be beautiful and that if only this or if only that, life would be again. And if people aren't careful, they're going to get depressed because they thought that the climax to their sub-story was actually the climax to the human story. And it wasn't. The human story goes on. Why does it go on? Why is it bigger than any little thing that you or I could be involved with? Why is it bigger even than any one local church could be involved with. It goes on because it's the story that God is writing through the entirety of creation, which will be fulfilled by Jesus in the end. And if you can cast your mind right back to January, when it was probably this cold, and if you can remember what we were speaking about, we talked about Revelation, and Revelation points everything towards a wedding and a feast. Advent is when you remind the taste buds of your soul that there's a heavenly feast to long for, that this isn't it. Jesus will come again. But what makes this more than a kind of dreamlike hope, more than a fluffy coping mechanism, is the fact that Jesus came That's the foundation for our hope, that he will come again. You see, to a hurting, waiting world, Jesus is the greatest gift. 
And I know that because of how he came. How does Jesus come? He comes humbly and generously. Listen again to this chunk of our reading from a slightly different translation. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, hopefully you can see from the formatting here that this isn't kind of like in normal paragraphs. This is a poem. It's possibly a song. It might even be a hymn from the earliest Christian community. Why highlight that to you? There's a reason that this stuff about the way that Jesus came comes in this kind of a form. And the reason is, the thing that it's trying to describe is so mind-bending that you can't get a direct look at it. You can only write about it poetically and try to capture some glimpse of the gloriousness of what's going on here because Jesus is God eternally, as in standing before the beginning and after the end of time, which our imagination can't possibly even begin to imagine. And he sees the fullness of this glorious reality and chooses not to take up all the wondrous possibilities it affords him, but actually to do the opposite. He empties himself. This is astounding generosity. Now, what makes this even more shocking is that Jesus can only do what he sees the Father doing. And if Jesus can only do what he sees the Father doing then this is not God the Father sitting somewhere aloof and distant while God the Son goes on an extremely painful adventure. This is the heart of God towards you and towards me and towards his creation. The heart of God is to empty himself out in order to come close to humans. That's the pattern of how Jesus came. He empties himself. He doesn't grasp what he could have had in order that God can encounter you and I in the flesh. He walks away from God's greatness to encounter you and me in our littleness in order that even there we might find the presence of a loving God who is calling us back to himself. Jesus makes God close and he does it over and over and over. Jesus changes greatness and makes it into love. Or rather, he shows us that God's greatness has always been his love. This is the only way that the Father of Jesus can be understood. This is his heart towards you. And even though... We are waiting for Jesus to come again, even though we await the fulfillment of this when Jesus comes again. The way he came at Christmas tells you that it is his heart towards you now as well. Jesus didn't just come 2,000 years ago. He isn't just coming again, we know not when. He comes to you today. And this, I think, is the tension of Advent. See, Jesus doesn't come to you 
like a John Lewis Christmas advert or an Asda one or anyone else's one. Again, Donald Miller puts it this way. The idea Jesus will make everything better is a lie. It's basically biblical theology translated into the language of commercials, infomercials, adverts. The truth is, the apostles never really promised Jesus was going to make everything better here on earth. In fact, it's hard to imagine how a religion steeped in so much pain and sacrifice, steeped in this humility of Jesus, turned into a promise of earthly euphoria. I think Jesus can make things better, but I don't believe he's going to make things perfect. Not here and not now. But Jesus does come. He comes to us, bringing the fullness of God close to the messiness of you and me. Miller continues, what I love about the true gospel of Jesus is that it offers hope. It will happen in heaven where there will be a wedding and a feast and all things are going to be made right and God and his people are going to be united. And this leaves you and me waiting for Jesus, longing for something more and hoping that all things will be made new. And that's what Advent trains us for. Advent is when we train ourselves to wait, to live with eager expectation. See, waiting can sound like a passive activity. You sit still and you don't move and maybe something will happen. But that's not what this kind of waiting is about. See, when Jesus came, he broke bread with his disciples and gave them a taste of the feast that's coming at the end. He gave them the chance to sit down with God at the table. When Jesus came, he gave humanity a flavor of what it's like when God and his people are united as they will be in the wedding at the end. And living with an eager expectation of that is about setting your life up in a way that invites God to move and trusting that he will do so, whatever that looks like. When you stop expecting God to end all of your troubles, you'd be surprised how much you like spending time with God. That's why this story needs unpicking. Because we were made to spend time with God and to find our ultimate fulfillment in him and not to chase a million intermediate goals on the way. This is what Paul encourages the Philippians at the end of our reading, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and to act. And it's actually how he introduces this whole poetic account of Jesus' life and its meaning. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. In other words, let the self-giving love of God work down into your bones in such a way that it begins to change what you do. Live your life steeped in that story. Read it every day. Learn it and lean on it. Spend your days alongside Jesus and his Father. Spend time with them and let it surprise you how much you can enjoy that. Let the spirit of Jesus that the Father pours out move you to action. Live 
the same kind of self-giving life that Jesus lives, not because you have to, but because you are, like him, a child of this heavenly Father. Come in confession like we did at the beginning of the, in the middle of this gathering. Come asking Jesus which ways he would have you forsake, as Johnny put it. See, the pattern of Jesus is not just the heart of God towards us. It's the heart of God for us. It's God's way for us to live. This is our pattern. The way up and the way down are one and the same. If you look at the pattern that, as in Philippians, Jesus humbles himself and therefore God exalts him. And in James, it talks about exactly this same pattern. Uh, James 4, verse, starting at verse 5. Do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. God really wants the spirit that he's put within you. But he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, God will stop at nothing for his spirit to dwell in you. Not even if he has to empty himself. Jesus shows us that God loves us more than he loves himself. And he invites us into a life with him, living in this love. And this is the way that you act out a hope that God will make all things new. You don't draw up the drawbridge and withdraw into the eroding little island of church life. You take on trust that wrong will be right when Jesus comes in sight, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, and you live freely as a result. See, there will be a day when all wrong things are made right. And it will be done by Jesus. And it will be at a wedding and there will be a feast. And you and I live with this hope. And with that, Advent teaches us. Advent is the time when we train ourselves to remember that this hope is stronger than any of our fears. And that's the ultimate Jesus revelation. That's why Jesus is the greatest gift. The ultimate Jesus revelation is to have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. To live a courageous life based on the hope that he is coming back and that when he does, we're heading for a wedding. We're heading for a feast. We're going to be wrapped up within the love of God and that it's possible to start to live that way now. Because this is his heart towards you. And it doesn't change. And it has been this way from eternity to eternity. Because eternity doesn't actually work like time. And it's not extended in that way. It's just impossible to imagine. So, in closing, we're going to come and have an opportunity to remind ourselves of this feast by joining in with this feast to invite you to turn 